at your boy. Welcome to the show. Um, there's a lot of stuff to talk about today. If I don't say so myself, it is going to be quite the show. Quite the show. So, um, there, obviously, we're, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the elections. There's a lot more Trump and Biden in the show today, even more than usual, and I know I do a lot usually. Um, so, Trump did a rally. We're going to talk about some of the stuff he said. We got new polling data about the upcoming debates. We have um, Trump head faking yet again to non-intervention, but how will he carry through and what will he carry through on? Uh, We'll talk about that. And then we have some hope on the 2024 horizon that we will be talking about. You do not want to miss that segment because we may have our candidate, ladies and gentlemen. We may have our 2024 candidate. And if you're feeling like everything is hopeless, fear not because it's a good one. It's as good as it gets. Um, And what else do I have for you? Oh, the numbers about the economy and the coronavirus are out of this world, y'all. Out of this world. It's insane. So we'll talk about that and more. All right, let's get started. And um, we're going to dive right into President Trump at his rally. Let's see what he had to say. President Trump had a rally in North Carolina the other night, and um, he hasn't been doing too many of them. I think the reason for that is COVID, because when he did his Tulsa rally, remember that in Oklahoma, Herman Cain was there, and then Herman Cain got COVID and died. So I don't, you know, I don't think they'd outwardly say this, but I'm pretty sure behind closed doors, even Trump and the people around him are like, that wasn't such a good idea now, was it? Um, So... 
I think in many ways the Democrats might be lucky and Biden might be lucky that Trump hasn't been able to go out there on the campaign trail and hit his stride and the rallies have been few and far between because that is the environment that Trump thrives in. Now, having said that, it is also true that he's the president and so the rallies are going to take a back seat to however he's doing in terms of the policies and his job and He's been an abysmal failure on COVID. He's been an abysmal failure on the economy, and that'll probably override the rallies, even if he was hitting his stride in the rallies. But um, it was interesting to see him back out there doing a rally. I want to play some parts for you. Here's the first one. This is he's going to riff on the difference between Hillary and Biden. Now, this is interesting because you could tell. You could always tell when Trump, like, meanders off script and when he stays on script. This is him definitely going off script, and he makes an interesting point. Biden's a globalist sellout who spent his career laying waste to American communities. And, you know, he talks about, like, well, he's going to do this. He's going to, he doesn't have any idea. He has no clue. He's going to do this. He's been there for 47 years. And, you know, he just really left. You know, he left three and a half, four years ago, right? So he just left, but he's been there for 47 years. I'm going to do this. You know, after 47 years, he's had a change of heart. This is the craziest election. This is the cra- Look, somebody said, what's the difference between crooked Hillary Clinton and slow Joe? So the difference is the following. She's meaner, probably not as nice. I don't know. You can't get any worse than her, would you think? But the big difference is she's smarter than he is, okay? He's a nicer person, but he's not smart. He never was, not in prime time, and certainly not now. You know, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. He's trying to say, well, Hillary was smarter, and Joe's not that smart. It looks to me like Hillary is just more conniving and Machiavellian, and willing to do those, like, smoke-filled backroom political deals. Now, I bet Joe is, too, um, but he just doesn't come across as conniving. And, you know, when you look at a younger Joe Biden, I don't know, he actually seems like he might be pretty smart, although I, you know, I colossally disagree with him on a million things. He's a tried-and-true corporatist. He's been on the wrong side of major decisions throughout his career. Early on in his career, he allied with segregationists. I'm not excusing any of that. I'm just saying, does he appear to be with it cognitively, and did he appear to be somewhat intelligent when he was younger? Yeah, I think so. I actually don't know who's smarter, Hillary or Joe Biden, but I wouldn't be surprised if it cut either way. I just think that Trump, Trump looks at the characteristics that somebody like Hillary has, which is like conniving and cold-blooded, And he views that as intelligence. Like, he thinks that's intelligence, which gets back to something I I had said previously about Trump, which is deep down, like, during the 2016 election, before, you know, everybody voted and we learned that Trump won, I think Trump had this thing in him where he actually wanted to be like Hillary Clinton. Now, here's why I say that, because Hillary Clinton is beloved by the establishment. The establishment loves her. She's ideal to the establishment. And I think that 
Trump always wanted that sort of pat on the head from the elites, where the elites would tell him, we think you're the elite of the elite, and you're our leader. Like, he always wanted that. He always wanted the official cool kid circle, all the people who went to, like, Harvard and Yale and are on Wall Street and stuff like that. He wants their approval more than anybody because he's a deep believer in hierarchy. And so he sees the people at the top of the hierarchy, the establishment, and he's actually jealous. And the fact that he wasn't part of that club, that led to him actually stumbling upon a great campaign strategy where he pretended to be more anti-establishment. I mean, I've told this story on air before. There's this big expose article that came out a little bit after Trump won where they described a meeting that happened in Trump Tower when Trump was considering running. He called into his office for a meeting the top bundler to Mitt Romney. So in other words, the guy who knows all the lobbyists and has all the connections and can raise the most money from billionaires and wealthy people and corporations. And Trump had a meeting with that guy. And Trump was like, I'm thinking about running. Will you be on my team? And the guy was just trying to brush Trump off because he didn't take him seriously. So what he said to him is just trying to get out of the meeting. He was like, you know, I think it's a new day and age in politics. And maybe you would do better if you ran and said, I'm rejecting big money and I'm self-funding my campaign. I'm financing my own campaign. And so I'm a true outsider and I'm not like these, these old school politicians. And so Trump heard that. And he was like, I think that's a brilliant idea. And he used those talking points when he ran and he won. But that whole strategy was birthed because Mitt Romney's top bundler didn't want to give Trump the time of day because he thought he was a joke. So we floated the idea, and then Trump ran with it. So ultimately, Trump wants to be beloved by the establishment. And, you know, he's got his administration now packed full of establishment people, and he's a deeply establishment president in terms of the policies he's pursuing. So, yeah, when he looks at Hillary and all those negative characteristics about Hillary, how she's conniving and she'll backstab you and she'll cut the backroom deals and she's Machiavellian and she's playing the game, he sees that as intelligence. He sees that as like, oh, she's really smart. You know, I just look at that, I see it for what it is. I don't think that if you're conniving, you're intelligent. If you're conniving, I think you're conniving. <laughs> that's what I think. I know it's a tautological, but that's what I feel about the situation. If you have those characteristics, you embody those characteristics. I don't think that makes you intelligent. So I don't know. I don't know who's smarter, Joe or Hillary, but I wouldn't be surprised if it cuts either way. The thing about Joe, guys, is, yes, he comes across as the everyman. And now Trump is trying to use that against him. But, Don, that's not – I don't think that's going to work. And, and it, honestly, I think it's not going to work because it's similar characteristics to what Trump showed in 2016, how Trump was so slippery because when Hillary attacked him, in many ways she attacked him. And, like, when she – remember in the debates where she was like, I think Donald just attacked me for studying for this debate. Guilty. I studied for this debate, and he's unprepared. So I don't think it's a bad thing. It just came across to a lot of people as, like, this is the smart kid in class who's, like, dunking on the person who's not as smart. And so a lot of people looked at that dynamic and sided more with Trump because it's like, hey, screw you, trying to act like, oh, oh, I'm so much smarter than you. And, you know, I, I did my homework. I, I prepared or whatever. The every man, the every person is going to be like, you know what, you're kind of obnoxious and annoying. So, but that's, Joe doesn't have that in him. Joe comes across like the everyman, like Uncle Joe. And so I think a lot of these attacks from Trump on Joe, like attacking him for his intelligence, I don't think that's going to land in the same way that the attacks on Hillary landed. Because people are just going to be like, you know what, that's actually just kind of mean. Like you think you're making a brilliant point, you're just a dick. So I think that in many ways, um, 
Biden is slippery in the same way that Trump 2016 was slippery. Because there is something about people who have that X factor where stuff doesn't land on them as much. And for all of his problems, Joe does come across like every man. And people don't have that visceral hatred of Joe like they had of Hillary. And so these kinds of attacks, like, oh, he's just not smart. I don't think that's going to work, man. I don't think that's going to work. So, oh, and the other thing I wanted to comment on was, you heard Trump there at the beginning. He made the argument like, oh, Joe's saying he wants to do all these things. He's been there for 47 years. So why didn't he already do it? Like, this is ridiculous. You know, so that line of attack is a line of attack that's effectively trying to say, hey, he is the status quo. He was just in office and things weren't good. So you got to go with me. Now, here's the problem. I think that this line of attack would have worked just fine in 2016. But see, now Donald Trump has been president for four years. So whatever you throw at Biden in that vein, he could just flip it right back on you. And he could say, you've been in there the last four years and the economy is crumbling. We have now 190,000 Americans who died of COVID. Millions of Americans have had it. Tens of millions of people lost the health care that myself and Barack Obama gave them. So you're the establishment as well. <laughs> and you're responsible for this mess. So he, that outsider edge in 2016, he no longer has that because it could just be flipped right back on him. You know? And Joe could have said, yeah, but I was a senator. You're the president. <laughs> I was never the president. I was the vice president and I was a senator. You're the president. You own the last four years. This is one of the problems with the Republican strategy is that, and I saw this a lot during the RNC, they would argue like, President Trump had built the best economy the world has ever seen, and we're going to build it again. But wait, you skipped a chapter. What happened in the middle? (laughs) He built the best economy we've ever seen, and he's going to do it again. So you're admitting right now it's terrible. You can't just do, you can't just like press fast forward. Like, we can skip a chapter or two, and then we'll... No, everybody, we're in that chapter right now, and it's a mess, and you're going to get blamed for it. So, listen, in some ways, I think Trump, he's in his element when he's doing these rallies. But yet again, I don't see... I don't think he's doing as well as he was doing in 2016 in these rallies, and he doesn't have as consistent and coherent a message as he did back then. He's all over the place with his attacks on Biden, and the most prominent lines of attacks have been, you guys all know it, you know, Joe Biden is, a, is a, a, an Antifa lover, <laughs> and he's effectively a communist or a Marxist, and he's radical left. And, like, since that's the main argument coming from Trump, I don't think that's going to land at all, which is why I was sounding the alarms in 2016 about how he could beat Hillary, and this time I do feel like Biden still has the edge because Trump's theory here is not bearing out, and he also is responsible for everything going on right now, and it's not good. But, you know, hey, with these rallies back, this certainly gives me a lot of material. Okay, next. Next, next, next. So I think I got to jot something down. Where's my pen? Okay.
Okay, here we go. Um, we got one more from Trump's rally that I want to share with you. And then I'm going to get to the polling data about the debate. So President Trump made an observation about the 2016 race that I want to share with you. This highlights how his political instincts used to be solid. They've fallen off quite a bit, but he makes an interesting point. But you always pick somebody that's hot that's going up in the polls, right? Going up. Frankly, I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever said this, but probably Hillary should have picked Bernie Sanders to be her running mate, right? Because, you know, as crazy as it sounds, he was hot. He gave her a hell of a fight. A lot of people think he won and it got taken away. One thing about Bernie, he's the greatest loser I've ever seen because, look, any children here? No, not too many, but they've heard it before. He got screwed four years ago and he got screwed again. You know, Biden got the nomination, right? He got the nomination. But if Biden would have sat back and if Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas, you remember Pocahontas? Right? She finally faded. She faded badly. But if she would have dropped out on Super Tuesday prior to Super Tuesday, Bernie would have been the nominee. And I don't know who I'd rather run against. One is super left. The other one's had to become super left. One is competent. The other one is only half competent now. And heading south. He's half, half competent and heading south rapidly. I mean, there's nothing better than Trump rambling off script because you get some gems in there. So, there, I mean, there are, there are grains of truth. You know, um, the idea that there was meddling behind the scenes to push Biden over the top is inarguably correct. I mean, that's obvious. So he's right. If, if Elizabeth Warren had dropped out before Super Tuesday, she had no chance of winning. If she had dropped before Super Tuesday a healthy chunk of those voters would have went to Bernie and it would have put him over the top. Not in all the states, that's not true, but in a bunch of the states, in a bunch of the states. And that could have changed the dynamic of the race alone. But the real thing is what happened with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar at the last minute. I mean, that's where it really, because it was, according to reports, it was Barack Obama who made the phone calls to Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete and basically said to them, listen, we're going to make a deal. What do you want? What do you need in order to drop out and endorse Biden? And we still don't know the terms of, those, uh, of that deal. But, you know, if Joe Biden wins, you'll find out because Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete will get some sort of position in the administration. And um, that is payback for dropping out at the last minute and endorsing Joe. And so you had the consolidation of the centrist vote. And you had the fractured left vote. And then voila, there you go. First time in history somebody won in the first three states, and then ended up losing the nomination. And it required that degree of messing around and meddling and working together behind the scenes. It required that. Now, there is still blame to go around at Bernie because, you know, they literally, they admit, his team admitted, we're trying to win in a fractured field. So they thought all he would need is like 35%, and then he wins. That, that was their philosophy. That was their philosophy. So you can blame them for not planning for something like this to happen. 
And you could also blame them for not switching up their strategy when it became one-on-one and not doing the things that he had to do and being as aggressive as he needed to be in order to beat Biden. I think all that is true. So there is blame to go around for Bernie's campaign for sure. Um, but yes, there are a lot of things needed to come together. You need the perfect storm behind the scenes for Biden to get you know pushed over the edge. There's a little bit of weekend at Bernie's going on here with Biden. Not weekend at Bernie with Bernie's, weekend at Bernie with Biden, because they kind of propped him up and put, got him across that finish line. Um, so he's not wrong in a lot of the stuff he's saying there. Just some of the stuff he's saying there, he's wrong. Like he said, oh, a lot of people think Bernie won and he got it taken away. I don't know if he's talking about 2016 or 2020 or both. But yeah, in 2016, I think there was more of a case for the outright rigging. 2020, I think it's more of a like perfectly legal kind of coordinating and meddling behind the scenes, which is gross, but still you know, allowed. Um, But I also am interested in the part where he said, hey, Hillary should have picked Bernie to be her running mate. I do believe that if she picked Bernie, they probably would have won. Because you got to remember, guys, it's not like Hillary won the popular vote by millions of votes. Millions of votes. The reason she lost is specifically because of the Rust Belt. In those Rust Belt states, it was what? maybe 100,000 or so votes dispersed throughout the Rust Belt states. So if Bernie was on the ticket, yes, I do think a lot of people who are otherwise disaffected would have voted for Hillary, and they could have won. Because he, all of her weaknesses, he fixes. He does. Her weakness was with the base and with the youth and with, like, white working-class people. And so... Yes, Bernie's record on the trade deals, Bernie's record on corruption, being a fighter, his record with unions. Like, yeah, all that stuff was the perfect thing that could have gotten her across the finish line. You know, a lot of people I know who didn't vote for Hillary would have sucked it up and voted for Hillary if Bernie was on the ticket, of course. But they didn't even consider it. That's the hubris. That's the hubris. And that's the personality clashes overriding what's good for the country and policy. But that's the hubris of it. You know, she picked Tim Kaine the most boring white dude on the planet who has the exact same politics as her. Terrible idea. Cross the board. So some of that stuff he's saying is true, man. It's true, but make no mistake about it, what he's doing is he's trying to exploit the disagreements in the Democratic Party and on the left because he views that it'll benefit him if he does this. You know, He's also just Trump and he's firing from the hip and he's rambling and he's impulsive and he's all id, but he also recognizes the more he talks about the problems on the Democratic side, the better it is for him. He thinks that by talking about Bernie being a victim, that you know, disaffected Bernie voters might go vote for him. I mean, listen, all I have to say is if you are a Bernie voter, then it usually is about policy. And if it's about policy, then obviously you can't vote for Donald Trump because it's horrendous when it comes to policy. So um, he's playing on personality stuff and he's playing on feelings. But I, I think it'll ultimately be fruitless, but it's interesting he's doing it nonetheless, because this is definitely not something you could ever imagine any previous Republican president doing. Okay. All right, now we're going to get to the polling data about the upcoming debates. I even polled you guys, totally unscientific, but I polled you guys on Twitter about this.
My hair's all fucked up. I'm trying to fix it live on air. <laughs> fix my hair, bitch. Okay. I don't think I did, but who cares? So we have some new polling data out on the upcoming debates. And... Oh, hold on. I fucked up. I fucked up my graphic, bitch. I got to start that from the top. There we go. I'm smooth today. Fucked up hair, bad graphics. So we have some new polling data out on the upcoming debates. Um, I find this interesting, even though it's also probably pretty predictable. But here's what they say. More voters expect President Trump to win the 2020 presidential debates than former Vice President Joe Biden, according to a new poll released Sunday. In the USA Today Suffolk University poll of registered voters, 47% predicted Trump would come out on top in the presidential debates compared to 41% who said the same about Biden. 47 to 41. Among independents, there's a 10-point gap with 47% saying Trump would win compared to 37% who said they expected Biden to win. The first of the presidential debates is set for September 29th in Cleveland with Fox News Sunday host Chris Wallace serving as moderator. Voters were less charitable toward the president when it came to his reelection message as presented in last month's GOP convention. 37% of registered voters surveyed said the conventions made them less likely to support the president in November, while 33% said they were more likely to vote for Trump after watching the conventions. So um, I also polled you guys. This is totally unscientific. It's just a Twitter poll. Uh, But I think it was about 20,800 votes in a two-hour time frame. And you guys said 50.2%. So a majority said... Trump would win the debates. Only 24.2% said Biden, and then 25.6% said it'll probably be like a tie. So, you know, I could have done just Trump or Biden, but I actually don't think that that's accurate enough. I think it makes sense to ask whether or not you think it'd be a tie, because it's easy to imagine a situation where the debates happen and they don't move the polls at all in either direction. In fact, not only is that possible, that might be the most likely scenario is that no matter what happens, the polls are going to stay the same. Because if anybody's consistent in their polling, it's Trump. He's consi- he has like this block of the country that never leaves him ever, but there's really not much oscillation. Like He, he could go up and down like three or four points in either direction, but he's more consistent than any other president in history. Other presidents have much bigger swings. Like They don't have as rock-solid a base as Trump does. Again, albeit smaller for Trump, but... It's about the same. So it's easy to imagine a situation where, you know, there is an effective tie in the debates. But listen, what this shows is even the secular talk audience, and nobody could accuse you guys of leaning right. That's obviously not the case. Most of you are somewhere in alignment with my politics. There's some to the left of me. There's some to the right of me. Um, But you guys said the same thing, which is you think that Trump is probably more likely to win the debates. So, you know, my take is similar to everybody who was polled here. I'm kind of with the majority. I think, uh, I think he is probably – he's a better debater overall. He's a better debater overall. He's very quick on his feet. Um, but I will say this. If Biden is on the pills, I could easily see him tying Trump, and there is even, I could even see him beating Trump, even though I think Trump is overall a better debater. I mean, I've seen Biden on the sauce, and when he's on the sauce, he's compelling. 
He is. You know, you go back and watch the 2012 debate. I know I've said that like almost every show for the past month, but go back and watch the 2012 debate of Paul Ryan versus Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden crushes him. And he has that quality of like that everyman quality of like being real in the responses. He's not like a canned politician who talks to on message, which gets annoying and you tend to zone out when you hear people like that talking. He's not like that. Um, he crushed Sarah Palin as well. Like, you know, that low bar, I get it. I get it. But he's not a bad debater. The only problem is that, yeah, his brain's not working as well as it used to. So he has to be on the sauce. He has to be on some sort of medicine, some sort of pills. But the last few videos I saw of him, I mean, God, the video of him ranting about the troops, talking about how we need more, you know, mental health treatment for the troops and PTSD is an epidemic. And I keep the card in my, in my you know, on me at all times of how many people are dying in the wars. He was ranting, and he was raving, and he was like focused and he was aggressive and it, it looked good. It looked good. He looked like he was with it. So even though I think Trump is overall a better debater, even though I think Trump is probably more likely to win, I wouldn't at all be surprised with a situation wherein it's a tie. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if Biden ended up winning. And I also think, again, he doesn't have that same visceral hatred of him that Hillary had of her. I feel like sometimes we forget big, how big of a role it plays just being human. Like, just being human, there's this thing that happens where you either like somebody or you don't. You either like the vibe you get from them or you don't. And Biden just doesn't have as many people who viscerally hate him as Hillary did. You know, Hillary just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, even apart from anything she may have done and the policies. And I admit that stuff is bad as a general rule when it comes to Hillary. But even just the personality and the way she came across, and it's not because she's a woman. I'm not saying that's why she rubbed people the wrong way. I'm just saying she rubbed people the wrong way. There were a lot of people who just thought she's flat out unpleasant. Whereas Joe does have that similar, similar vibe to Trump in that it kind of comes across in some ways as like the shoot from the hip, no filter, every man, um, even though they both in many ways are not the every man, <laughs> but they have that quality about them. So, and, and by the way, this could also hurt Trump in that now the bar is higher for him. I feel like going into the Hillary debates, everybody thought Hillary's going to crush him. All of the media thought that, and all the pundits thought that. And so when Trump didn't, like, you know, curl up in the field position and cry, people were like, oh, my God, he won. Whereas this time, now the bar's set higher where people expect Trump to win. And so that also might have an effect where it's a lower bar for Biden. If he clears that lower bar, then people will be like, hey, maybe Biden won. But, yeah, I've told you guys previously, I think Trump is in trouble. And what he needs is, I don't know how many debates they're doing, two or three, whatever it is. He needs to win all of those debates decisively. He needs to do something that materially helps people, like cut more stimulus checks. Um, and he also needs to just act professional for the remainder of the time in office where he can kind of calm the tensions in the country because he's been doing the opposite and that makes people hate him more. So he kind of needs a miracle at this late date because Biden has been up a lot the entire time. Um, but yes, a comeback would have to start with him doing really well in all the debates. And it appears like most people think that's what's going to happen. Most people think he's probably going to be Biden. Even my audience, even you guys think Trump uh, is likely to be Biden. But listen, man, don't sleep on, on old Uncle Joe if he's on the sauce. We'll know, we'll know immediately. If you watch it and he's, uh, he's slow, slurring his words, rambling about things that make no sense. I mean, this happened a few times in 
in primary debates, in the debate with Bernie, he was on something, and he did well. But in the primary debates, there were times where, you know, the phone, the record player, make sure the kids hear words. We had those amazing moments that came out of it. Um, but we'll know. We'll know as soon as the debate starts. You'll know within 15 minutes if he's on something or not. But you guys know my take on it. I want both of them to be on stuff because that would make, that would make it very entertaining. And I feel like that's the best season finale for 2020. Okay. All right, now we're going to talk about what Trump is allegedly doing on foreign policy. Here we go. Here we go, baby. BBC News is reporting on U.S. foreign policy moves from the Trump administration. The U.S. will withdraw more than a third of its troops from Iraq within weeks, its top Middle East commander has said. General Kenneth McKenzie told reporters the troop presence would be reduced from about 5,200 to 3,000 during September. Those remaining will continue to advise and assist Iraqi security forces in rooting out the final remnants of the jihadist group Islamic State. Last month, U.S. President Donald Trump reaffirmed that he planned to pull all troops out of Iraq as soon as possible. He is expected to hail the reduction of forces as progress towards his 2016 election campaign promise to disentangle the U.S. from endless wars. The presence of U.S. troops has also become a major issue in Iraq since the U.S. killed top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in a drone strike in Baghdad in January. Okay. Um, So here's the thing. I will believe it when I see it. That's point number one, because this is now what, the second time, third time, fourth time? We've had these conversations, and there have been these articles written. And listen, it happened under Obama as well, where Obama would say in some State of the Union address, we're going to get out of the Middle East, and we're going to do it by this date. And then what would happen? They would never get out. What they would do is yo-yo the troop levels. All right, we got 10,000 there now. We're going to bring it down to 7,000. Okay, we're going to bring it back up to 10,000. Okay, we'll bring it down to 3,000. Okay, we're going to bring it back up to 12,000. That's what happened throughout all of the Obama years and all of the Trump years. The same thing. So Obama would always use the rhetoric of non-intervention and withdrawing and ending the war on terror and getting out of the Middle East. And then he would continue business as usual and the military industrial complex. Trump, same thing. Exact same thing. He said it multiple times. I remember covering the story where he tweeted about it one night. Like, we're going to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was like, oh, that's what's up. Okay, apparently behind the scenes, the generals looked at that and they were like, here's what we're going to do. Not that. We're going to stay there. And he was like, okay, I guess we're going to stay there. You know, guy comes in, general, straight out of central casting, got the stars and the flags, the nice pressed uniform, straight out of central casting. And he says, sir, we're going to stay there. And I said, you know what, I think you're right. Maybe we should stay there. This is what happens. He's not the boss man. Whoever's whispering in his ear is getting their way. When it comes to the economy, it's Wall Street. When it comes to foreign policy, it's the military industrial complex. When it comes to health care, it's the pharmaceutical companies, and it's, you know, the for-profit health insurance companies. He is repping the establishment, obviously. But he, he still does 
puts up the veneer and the facade and does the kabuki theater of like, oh, yes, war is bad. So I'll believe it when I see it, point number one. But point number two is they're not even saying we're going to get out. They're not even saying that. 5,200 troops to 3,000. 3,000 troops there means we're still there. And I guarantee you there still will be soldiers that get in fights, die. They say, oh, it's to train them. South Obama said the same thing for his entire second term. Uh, we're there to assist uh, the Iraqis in their own country. It's the same thing. It never ends. It's always the same. So he's not even... I'll believe it when I see it, but even if he does it, he doesn't deserve a lot of credit for this. You're just reducing the number to 3,000. 3,000 troops mean we are still at war. But what he's going to do is, and they admit this in the article, they say, like, September 29th is the first debate. Trump is going to brag about getting out of Iraq. That's what he's going to do. He's going to say, I'm, I got our troops out of Iraq. So amazing. So incredible. I fulfilled my promise of 2016. The American people want our soldiers home, and I'm bringing them home. That's what he's going to say. And then, I, God, I really hope that Biden doesn't take the bait and do the, you know, we got to be responsible and we got to make sure that we help our Iraqi friends and so we should stay. Because you, you know how the Democrats are. He might do that because he doesn't, it's not like Biden believes in anything. It's not like he believes in an anti-war position. So he might, Trump might outleft him and then Biden will follow him right down that path like, the, like a sucker. So you better hope he doesn't do that. But this is what Trump is going to do. He's going to use this talking point. He's going to act like I'm getting us out, even though he's not. Even though he said it a thousand times already, he didn't get us out. And even though if he follows through, we're still there. You want to know how you withdraw? You withdraw. <laughs> you get us to zero people there. And I love, there's this like, there's this status quo bias that people have where they think like, what do you, but that's crazy. You want to like withdraw? Yeah. <laughs> We've been in, in Afghanistan since 2001. Iraq in, since 2003. When do you want to leave? 40 years from now, 50 years, 80 years, you want to never leave? Uh, Lindsey Graham is honest. He says, you don't get out. We should stay there forever. He said that when he ran for president, got negative 18 votes. So, I mean, like, they don't even bother to define what victory would even mean anymore. Think about how insane this is. We're still fighting wars, and they don't even bother to say, like, we're, as soon as we reach this goal and this happens, then we're going to declare victory and get out. They don't even do that anymore. Because, by the way, to the extent that there were actual goals that they said were the goals originally, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. What did they say when it came to Afghanistan? Listen, it's not like we want to go there. we got to go there because al-Qaeda is hiding there and the Taliban's protecting them and Osama bin Laden's there. That's why we got to go. He attacked us on 9-11. What do you want to do? You just want to sit there and take it? How long has Osama bin Laden been dead now? How long is has Osama bin Laden been dead? According to our own intelligence uh, operatives, they say there's only a couple hundred al-Qaeda members even in Afghanistan at this point. So Osama bin Laden's dead. There's very few al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Why are we still there? This was the original reason for going in. When it comes to Iraq, what was the original reason for the war in Iraq? You guys know. I mean, it sounds crazy to say, because this is... I mean, we've been done for so long with what was the original stated goal. We've got to get Saddam. Mission accomplished. Where's Saddam? www.dead.com. He's gone. So why are we still there? They don't even bother to give you a story anymore. They don't even bother to give you a story. So what does it come down to? I mean, listen, couldn't be any more clear. A lot of people make a lot of money 
from us still being in these wars. Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, the entire military-industrial complex, who pay the politicians, and then the politicians give them these no-bid contracts, they make a tremendous amount of money, they have a lot of jobs are tied to this. That's one aspect of it. What's the other aspect of it? In Iraq, it's the oil, of course. Oil production shot through the roof after we invaded and occupied. And in Afghanistan, trillions and trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. Mineral wealth. Like a lot of the stuff that's used in smartphones, you, it comes from Afghanistan. I mean, listen, people might say it's conspiratorial. Is it really? If the original stated goal was we got to get Osama bin Laden, got him. we got to get Saddam Hussein, got him. They're both gone. Mission accomplished, but we're still in Iraq and we're still in Afghanistan and nobody bothers to define what victory is and we just stay there indefinitely and nobody even says anything about it and the media barely even freaking covers it? Is it really conspiratorial for me to say what I'm saying here, pointing out the obvious? I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. And so here we are. Obama ran on getting us out, kept us in. Trump ran on getting us out, kept us in. He'll do a tap dance now. I get, by the way, you want to you wanna secular talk? Kyle Kalinske guarantee? Here you go. Hypothetically, if Trump wins re-election, 3,000 troop number in Iraq, not only will he not bring the troops down to zero, he'll increase it after he reduces it. So if he wins re-election, having drawn down troops from 5,200 to 3,000, he will quietly raise that troop level back up in due time. Because it's exactly what Obama did. It's exactly what every president does. Because really, they're all serving the military-industrial complex. They're all doing it. And but don't get it twisted on Biden, either. Do I think Biden's going to pull out of these wars? No. I don't either. I don't think he will, either. The only one who would have done it is Bernie. And even he, I could see him saying, like, We'll keep, like, 500 troops there. I could see that happening with him, too. So, Don't fall for the head fakes. Believe it when you see it. And even if he follows through, there's still 3,000 troops there. This isn't withdrawing. Okay. Okie dokie. Here we go. Let's continue. President Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Amazing. So a Norwegian far-right MP nominates Donald Trump for Nobel Peace Prize. I'm going to butcher his name. Christian Tybring Gajetti? Is the G silent? Jetty? Is the J silent? Getty? (laughs) However you say it. Uh, he put Trump forward for a second time over the Israel-UAE peace deal. So he um, nominated Trump in 2018 for his North Korea dealings. Um, Obviously, Trump didn't get it then. I don't think he'll get it now either. And by the way, anybody can be nominated um, or any – I think there are some rules about – some sort of position they have to have, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. But just so everybody understands, it's not like here are some other people who were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize: Stalin, Mussolini, and Hitler. <laughs> they were all nominated. Now none of them got it. But want to hear something crazy? 
here's somebody who did win the Nobel Peace Prize, 1973, Henry Kissinger. Okay, literal genocider, <laughs> and he got a Nobel Peace Prize. And here who, here's who didn't get a Nobel Peace Prize, Gandhi. Snubbed Gandhi, gave one to Henry Kissinger. I think that says it all. And, of course, I mean, Barack Obama won one in 2009, and I love the reason. They explain in this article, the reason was, you ready for this? Quote, his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between people. What does that even mean? His extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between people. Okay, here's a Kyle rule going into effect now. <laughs> if you've ever ordered a drone strike, you can't get a Nobel Peace Prize. You can't get a Nobel Peace Prize. Drone strikes are, you know, it's like you're officially ordering murder using a machine in the sky. So that's the opposite of peace. I get it. You know, people are complex. Politicians' actions are complicated. There are instances of doing the right thing. I'll give a few examples of it. Barack Obama with the Iran deal. That was one of the best things he did. That genuinely fostered an environment of peace until Trump came along and ripped it up and escalated with him. So that was a positive thing. Normalizing relations with Cuba was a very positive thing. Barack Obama did that. In the case of Trump, yes, I'm one of the few on the left who will actually give him credit for the North Korea thing because it's better than the alternative. Talking to North Korea, allowing South Korea and North Korea to work stuff out and sit at the table and negotiate, that's all way better than escalating militarily. He got a lot of crap for stopping the military drills on North Korea's border. They shouldn't have even been doing them in the first place. Of course Trump was right about that. I'll give credit where credit is due, but the Kyle rule still stands. If you've ordered a drone strike, you should not get a Nobel Peace Prize, period, period. Especially because the reporting under Obama was 90% of those strikes killed innocent people. And the reporting under Trump is that he increased uh, the use of the drones 432%. So Obama was a huge increase over Bush, killing all these civilians, and Trump was a huge increase over Obama, and of course, I'm guessing, killing just as many civilians, if not more, because he's doing more strikes. So, yeah, and also, I mean, listen, they're sanctioning medicine from going into Iran, and people are dying because they can't get the medicine they need. That guy should not get a Nobel Peace Prize. And look at what he's doing in Venezuela, for example. Basically starving the country through sanctions, trying to force regime change. He's still in Iraq. He's still in Afghanistan, continuing these wars, even though he's yo-yoing the troop levels. Nobel Peace Prize. Get out of here. The head of, like, the world's sole superpower imperialist nation. When it was Obama, and now that it's Trump. Of course you shouldn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. Anybody who's dumb enough to think, like, what do you mean the U.S. really is? They uphold law and order worldwide. We're the world policemen, and we make sure that bad things don't happen. Are you kidding me? If we're the world's policemen, we're like one of those cops who kills an unarmed black person. We're one of those policemen. We're one of the bad apples that's talked about so much. Because look at everything we've done around the world. I mean, the war in Iraq was criminal. We waged an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us and killed a minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. That's not an opinion. That's not conjecture. That's a fact. That's what we did. It was in contravention of international law. We weren't allowed to do it. We made up that, uh, oh, Saddam had something to do with 9-11. Nonsense! Nonsense! So we are the rogue nation 
we're the ones who violate the law. You're going to give the head of the United States of America a Nobel Peace Prize. Get out of here. Thankfully, he's not going to win it. But even just the, even just nominating him is like gross. And again, I don't think Obama should have been nominated or gotten it either. It's ridiculous that he did get it. But for sure, Trump shouldn't get it either. No way, man. No way. And you look through the rest of Trump's record. I mean, look at the fact that tens of millions of people have lost health care under him. Tens of millions because of his executive orders destroying Obamacare. Even before COVID-19, up to 9 million people had already lost their health insurance under Trump's administration. You can give this guy a Nobel Peace Prize or even consider it. It's just so obviously ridiculous. It's, and I, I know, even if you're a hardcore Trump fan out there, even you know on some level. Like, come on, man. Really? There's nobody better out there. There's nobody better. How about just anybody who hasn't ordered a drone strike? You watching this right now, I would sooner give you a Nobel Peace Prize than I would give Obama or Trump. I would. Because you probably wake up, go to work, hang out with your friends, take care of your family, play some basketball or some shit. You're not hurting anybody. <laughs> You're not hurting anybody at all. You never ordered a drone strike. You never, nobody ever lost health insurance because of you. Why does everything have to be so stupid? It's not like it's not just that things are bad. It's like we're going to insult your intelligence bad. You're going to feel like this world isn't real bad. Donald Trump is the president of the United States and he, they nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize. Think about what happened with Suleimani, man. He assassinated a foreign general, all casual, willy-nilly. Assassinated a foreign general who was not a threat to us. They lie about it and say he was. That guy was fighting ISIS. He was fighting ISIS. He wasn't a threat to us. He assassinated a guy with a machine in the sky and almost sparked World War III. Nobel Peace Prize. No Nobel Peace Prize. Because of a deal between Israel and the UAE, which is nothing... But a, a snub of the Palestinians, you're going to make a peace deal in the Middle East and further snub the Palestinians? That ain't no damn peace deal. That's a I'm desperately trying to get reelected type deal where you want to have something to brag about. So now you get your lackeys in these surf states of ours to do our bidding. Although, are we the surf state to Israel? Maybe. <laughs> Why do we subsidize them billions of dollars a year and they have universal health care and we don't? That makes no sense. But anyway, they're... It's like a last-ditch effort. Give me something to brag about for my re-election. Oh, yeah, a peace deal, normalizing relations between two countries that were already cooperating. Wow. Another FU to the Palestinians. What a joke. What a joke. I can't believe anybody would look at this and think it's a good thing. I don't even want to see what Fox News is saying about this, because I will want to put a bullet in my brain if I watch their propaganda. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, oh, you guys are going to love this, man. Who is thinking about running in 2024? Get excited. You will be excited. I was excited. Stay right there. I'm just going to grab a little quick something to snack on because I'm starving. We'll be right back with that and much more.
I am back, bitch. All right, so I'm going to let everybody in on what I just had. I had a roast beef sandwich, which was absolutely out of this goddamn world delicious. It had Swiss on it. It had some ketchup. And I also had chips that I put on top of it and that I kind of like crushed on it. I got that trick from Corin. I got the chips trick from Corin, and the other thing is the fries trick I got from Corin. Yeah, the fries trick is when you get a burger, let's say you go to, like, McDonald's or something, and you get a burger, you got to add, like, six or seven fries to the burger. Like, add it, put it on the burger. And that actually does just give, like, a little bit. As much as you're going to enjoy it, it adds, like, a little extra 5% to it on top. Like, it's already delicious, and then you add the fries, and then it's, like, that little extra bit of delicious, that little 5% extra of, like, mwah, enjoy this meal, mwah. So, yeah, now I do that sandwich. When I'm eating a sandwich, I'll throw some, like, you know, some Lay's on top of it. Usually, I don't like to go too crazy. Like, I don't like to throw in, like, super flavored chips on top of it, but just, like, some... Some regular chips, some like lightly salted types, you know what I'm saying? Like stuff like that. Mm. Okay, now let's all get excited. That is one million percent going to be my reaction to what you're about to see. So I know that the left has been feeling a little bit down recently, and understandably so, man. You know, I went through it just like you guys went through it. The high that we had on the night of the Nevada caucus, where not not only did Bernie win, he crushed. And that made it effectively three wins in a row, three popular vote wins in a row to start the primary. And nobody had ever done that and then lost. So we're going thinking, okay... The conversation we were having at the time was, is he going to win an outright majority or is he going to win a plurality? And if it's a plurality, we know they're going to do a contested convention to try to take it from him. And so we were all saying, we got to get ready to go to Wisconsin and to, to you know, stop them from trying to steal it from him. But that was the discussion, plurality or, or majority. That was it. That, those were the options. And then it all fell apart so quickly. There are a variety of things that went into it. There was poor strategizing from Bernie and his team, uh, the inability to change and acknowledge the new reality. They were trying to run, getting a, a, you know, they were trying to win with a minority, like win with 35%. But when the field was no longer fractured and the centrist consolidated, they needed to adjust and they just didn't adjust. And then also you could blame all the smoke-filled backroom deals, which inevitably killed Bernie, Obama making a phone call to Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, offering them positions to drop out, endorse Joe, and Elizabeth Warren staying in, which helped screw Bernie. Everything. It was the perfect storm, and it just all fell apart. So we went from on top of the world to basically feeling like totally hopeless, and now we're back in the same position we were in 2016, where everybody was arguing about what to do in the general election. Do you suck it up and do, you know, the lesser evil vote, or do you not do it? Like, these are the, now the discussions that we're having. Well, guess what, guys? For 2024, there is hope. There is hope on the horizon. So 
The great Nina Turner went on The Young Turks. She's talking here to Jank Uger and to Benjamin Dixon. And look at the question they asked and her answer. What are you thinking about 2024? I am. I mean, there are lots of people that I hear from all the time, from all over this country, who want me to consider running again. It's always something that is on my list. But for this moment, I'm going to continue to help progressive candidates, progressive causes. I'm also going to continue to navigate the racial justice space uh, to do those things. We need corporations to come on through. Now, they come through for themselves and the tax breaks and how they lobby companies. We need them to come on through for the people. And there is a way to get those cor- some of those corporations to do that, especially on the justice side. Since the killing of George Floyd, we know that a number of corporations have pledged whole lot of money for racial justice. Let's see if they can do that. So I'm also going to put some of my talent on, on that side. But absolutely, strong consideration for 2024, no doubt. If Nina Turner runs, that's my candidate. She'll have my full support, and I'll do everything I can to help get her elected. And I hope she does run. I really do. So when when you look at the options that are available to us, so we covered the poll. There was a poll that came out recently of the 2024 prospects, and, you know, the list was not looking great. It was like Andrew Cuomo was on top, and then you also had, like, Mayor Pete, who was, like, close to the top. And um, it just didn't look great for the left in terms of our future prospects in the 2024 presidential race. Now, by the way, let me just say, funny enough, when you get to the Senate level and you get to to Congress people, and even when you get to, like, state and local elections, the left has been doing really good. Like, there's been a bunch of instances of, like, DSA-endorsed candidates or, uh, you know, all these other left-wing groups, like, these candidates winning. So I'm not trying to say it's it's all bad. It's just when you look at... At the presidential level, the numbers didn't look great for us because there were a lot of, like, establishment types who were kind of at the top of the list. So, you know, I, I was thinking about it, and I'm like, well, who, who would we want? Like, who would we want to run and win? Now, a lot of people are going to say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be the first one that comes to their mind. You know, I don't know her age, but she might. She's either not going to be old enough by 2024, or she'll just barely be old enough. Um, And I don't... And then I think there are also other issues where, in the time that she's been there, she has pissed quite a few people off in terms of constituencies that we would need as, as a voting base in order to win. So I'm not sure, no disrespect to her, but I'm not sure that's the direction for 2024, Um, she might want to go, like, Senate seat before she even goes, like, for president. Um, But I And I also think she leaned maybe a little too hard into social issues and not enough into economic issues. And I didn't like it when she kind of, when it came to Ilhan Omar, and Ilhan Omar was getting smeared as an anti-Semite, and she kind of came out and did this, almost like this both sides commentary of, like, we need to hear people out instead of just flat out defending Ilhan. That got under my skin a little bit. So there, there are issues there. So, but a lot of people would bring her up, and I would say, I'll be kind and just say, not yet. Not yet, okay? Um, but then who else would be on the list? Honestly, the next one that came to my mind, Andrew Yang. 
I think he be, and, and I get it. A lot of people out there, oh, come on, because, you know, he famously backed off of Medicare for All, which pissed me off and pissed many people off. He also endorsed Joe Biden pretty early, which got under my skin and got under many other people's skin. Um, but I really thought he's one of the top hopes because I think he's movable on issues like Medicare for All. I think if, if you make an actual logical argument to him and show him exactly why it is objectively, empirically a better path, that you could change his mind. And you want to know why I say that? Because I think he's an, an, a really honest guy. I think he's an honest guy, and he can be moved on things if you show him enough evidence. I don't think he's just motivated by, like, careerism like a lot of the other people in Washington, D.C. So Andrew Yang is somebody who's on my list of, like, maybe, maybe, but we don't know. We don't know, you know, if slash when that day will come, if he wants to run again, or if he might be doing something else. I don't know. I don't know. Then the other one that popped in my mind was Jesse Ventura. Now, he was considering maybe running Green Party, but it didn't work out because of backroom stuff that was happening behind the scenes. So I, I don't want to get into that, and I don't know too much about that, to be honest with you guys. But what I do know is, if he runs, he would make a splash. And, you know, if he runs as on one of the two major parties, he has a chance of winning. So, and I think Democrat is closer to him than Republican is. He's got politics that are very similar to mine. And so I was thinking, hey, he's somebody who could seriously, almost, almost like a Trump of the left. Like he could come in and kind of shake everything up. And he's such an interesting character, such an interesting guy. And he's like uniquely honest and has integrity. Now, the downside of him would be, I don't think he would run as a Democrat, which means if he runs as, I don't think he has any chance of winning if he runs as an independent or runs as, you know, a third party, no disrespect to the third parties. I'm just saying, realistically, you're not going to win in 2024. It's, if you want to build one of these parties, it's a very long-term goal. It won't happen immediately. Um, but also, that show conspiracy theory that he did was a little too kooky, even for me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to, you know, look past a lot of that stuff, but um, that show was out there. There was some conspiracy theories that I thought, like, this is ridiculous. So, again, I love Jesse Ventura. I really do. Um, but he was one that popped to, into mind, but of everybody I named so far, I like them, but there are issues. There are issues. Then Nina Turner came to mind. There's no issues. <laughs> That's, I, I feel like she's closest uh, to my politics, and she has all of the political talent in the world that I've ever seen. She, the way she speaks, she could burn a place down with enthusiasm and the energy that she gives off. And I think, she's, I think she'd be perfect for it. I do. Now, what will she be attacked with? I think she'll be attacked with lack of credentials that she hasn't had. You know, she's never been a, Congress per, a U.S. congressperson. She's never been a senator. So I feel like people might use that to attack her. I think you kind of, could kind of brush off those attacks. I don't really think they're that serious. We have a freaking reality star buffoon who's president now. He has way he had way fewer credentials in politics than Nina Turner does, um, but she ran our revolution. I believe she was a, a state senator uh, for Ohio, um, and I think she's amazing. I really think she is. Um, I think she has the most potential of everybody that I just listed, and I would absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, support her. There would be some hurdles in terms of how it would go in a primary. Um, 
I think one of the reasons why Barack Obama ended up winning in 2008 is that, yes, he ended up becoming the first black president, but if you look at his rhetoric on racial issues, man, he sounded pretty conservative. At, at most, he was centrist on race issues. He gave a famous speech where he basically tried to do the whole, like, wag your finger at black fathers. Um, and so it, it, was, it was a concerted effort and a strategy on Obama's part and on his team's part to be like, you almost have to, like, take a step back and almost not touch racial issues because, and I do believe that this was the calculation, this country in many ways is still racist. And, you know, they, they almost strategized and used that against everybody. You know what I mean? Like, they took the fact that it's still in many ways a bigoted country, and he was able to jujitsu the country and strategize where he's like, well, what if I'm the first black president, but I just don't really talk about race? And whenever I do talk about race, I sound like moderately conservative. Then do you like me? And yes, keep it real. What happened is there are a lot of white moderates. The one that MLK talked about and said, they're the biggest impediment to change. There are a lot of white moderates who looked at Obama and said, that's my, that's my guy right there. That's my candidate. America found a good one. That's, that was the, the mindset. So... In many ways, that annoyed the left, but you got to keep it real. It was also strategically brilliant on the part of the Obama campaign to understand, to almost tap into the racial mood of the country and realize, like, okay, this country will accept black leaders for sure. Will it accept black leaders who lean into racial issues? Mm, that's a lot harder for the white moderate to get on board with. So basically it was a concerted effort from the Obama team. We're going to take a couple steps back on like racial issues. We're going to stay out, but to the extent we ever talk about it, they did sound moderately conservative. Um, and he did, he like, he would stress personal responsibility stuff. That's all right wing talking points, guys. That's what it is. But it struck the right chord where the, the entire country and so many white people were like, we love this guy. And so I do think Nina Turner would have run into similar issues because it is harder for any black politician. It is harder. There's so much more of a balancing act. It's almost like you get more freedom to talk about like racial justice stuff if you're a white person because then other white people are more likely to listen and be like, hmm, interesting, like, tell me more. But if you're a black leader and you lean into racial stuff, they'll immediately accuse you, oh, you're always playing the race card. Uh, why you got to be divisive. Like, these are the things that they'll trot out against any black leader. So Obama masterfully and strategically worked around that and won the White House. For Nina Turner, I do think she would run into a similar conundrum, which is like, okay, kind of a little bit of a bigoted, racist country. How do you strategize in a way where Nina Turner can bring together the entire working class, but that includes people of color and the white working class? And honestly, the way that you get white working class people to get on board is if Nina Turner were to lean into economic stuff, healthcare stuff, things that affect everybody. That's not to say that you abandon your principles and the policies of racial justice, because we never give an inch on policy. This is a hallmark of being a real leftist. Yes, you have litmus tests, but the litmus test is on policy. It's not on personal story stuff. 
So Nina Turner should never back off of her correct position on policy. But should there be an attempt to use strategic rhetoric in order to basically unite everybody and lean into other issues of healthcare and economics and war, things where you build that multiracial coalition, but you do it by leaning into the issues that impact everybody while not necessarily leaning into the racial issues, but still pushing for the right policies when you're in power. See, you have to get to power to actually win on any of these things. And the way you get to power is by being strategic. And the way you be strategic is to lean into the issues where you have an advantage. And the left has an advantage on what issues? Medicare for all, corruption issues, the economy, war, ending war. So the left loves to, I don't know what it is about the left, but the left loves to lean into the things where we're not popular and not lean into the things where we are popular, which then what happens makes people hate you. That's what happens. It's like a tweet I saw the other day where they were like, somebody said, oh, I love white leftists telling other white leftists that it was okay that they were once fascists. No, honey, it's not. And it's like, okay, well, good luck building a winning coalition, actively telling people you're not allowed in even if you reform and come to my ideas. <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And this, this is kind of in the same vein as that. Like, in order for the left to win, the left needs to be strategic. The way you're strategic and the way you win at politics is to lean into the issues where people agree with you and like you, and don't lean into the issues where people are not necessarily on board. So anyway, I think one of the hurdles that Nina Turner would face is how do you deal with the fact that we still in many ways have a bigoted country, we still in many ways have a racist country, we still in many ways have a country that I do think would turn away from and shy away from a strong black woman making arguments on identity that are very pro-black. And so I think that's a, a stumbling block, that's a hurdle, but it's not one that I don't think she can clear. I think she has the political skill to clear it, I do. Um, and if you listen to Nina Turner talk, man, she's amazing. And I do think she has the ability to bring in the entire multiracial working class, but even those like older white workers, if they really listen to Nina Turner, I think they find themselves agreeing most of the time. And so we need to translate that into votes for a left agenda. And I do think she's the heir apparent to the Bernie throne, in my opinion. He built this brilliant thing in 2016 and, and 2020, got all these people politically involved. I do think she's, she's best positioned to kind of inherit the movement and be the new leader. And um, I think she has all the tools that are necessary and then it would just be a matter of, okay, how do we strategize in a way where we can get as many people with us as possible so we win power and then we get our entire policy agenda implemented? Not just on healthcare stuff and economic stuff, but also on racial stuff and everything, every aspect of the agenda. So I love it. I'm looking forward to it. Nina has my full support if she indeed jumps in, and I hope she does jump in. Okay, next. President Trump and Joseph Rogan. I love this. 
President Donald Trump tweeted a Joe Rogan video. (laughs) This is wild, man. So I can't actually play the audio for you because that leads into like patent or copyright issues. And now there might even be a whole new Pandora's box opened up because he's on uh, Spotify now and not just YouTube. And I don't know who like the parent company is that does the copyright stuff. He would let me use it. I'm sure if it wasn't a giant pain in the ass and it wasn't like automatically set up to copyright strike everything that's out there that's a duplicate of his stuff. Anyway, I digress. So I can't play it for you. But basically what Joe says in this video tweeted by President Trump, it's a podcast with Joe and Matt Taibbi. And um, Joe says, I think of Biden like going camping with a half dead flashlight. And it's like it works at the beginning, but, you know, it's not going to end well. He says something along those lines. And listen, that is kind of an apt description of Biden. But President Trump tweeted this. And um, (laughs) it's really funny because I went back and I listened to some other parts of that podcast that he did with Matt Taibbi. Guys, Joe and Matt Taibbi are ripping Trump in that podcast as well. Of course, they go after Biden, too. But they rip Trump in that podcast. They say... They call him a a, a sociopath. They talk about how he's probably on speed, which is a common thing. Joe and I talked about that when I was on his podcast as well, probably multiple times. We we talked about that. Um, And they also compared him to the (laughs) – I think Taibbi compared him to, like, the worst people in the world. Like, this is always how it works. You have these, like, decrepit leaders of countries who live to, like, 90 or 95, and they got all these, like, hardworking people who are good people in the factory, and they die, like, 35 in industrial accidents and stuff. And it's just like there's no justice in the world in that sense. But they call him a sociopath. They say he's on speed, and they talk about how he's like one of the worst people in the world. And, of course, Trump has this little clip that he tweets out as if it's indicative, as if, like, the entire conversation was pro-Trump and anti-Biden when it just wasn't. But isn't that crazy? And this actually reminded me, this is like what happened with Bernie, too. Bernie got, like, a very tepid endorsement from Joe Rogan where Joe said, you know, I'll probably vote for Bernie. And he was explaining how Bernie's been uniquely consistent his whole career. He has these positions, and he's been fighting for these positions, and he's just a good person who wants a better world for everybody. And so Joe casually said this in conversation on his podcast, and Bernie and his team clipped it out and tweeted it. And, you know, he must feel, Joe must feel like he can't talk about anything without, I mean, these are like literally people running for president, the president. These are the most powerful people on earth you can't just have a casual conversation without people trying to like clip stuff out and run it. And that's gotta be a weird feeling. Cause when you talk like his podcast are two or three hours, when you talk that much, you don't even know what you're saying half the time. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying half the time. And I talk less than he does. So that must be really, really weird. But it is funny how, whether it was Bernie and his team or Trump with this thing he tweeted And everybody knows I love Bernie. Everybody knows I don't like Trump. But it's amazing how politicians will, like, just grab onto anything that is popular and try to kind of make it their own in a way. Like, even with the Bernie thing. How many times has Joe said on his podcast that, like, man, Bernie's got some issues. His head is basically in the middle of his chest. He always talks about his terrible posture and how he doesn't look like he's, like, fit or whatever. And it's like he says that, but Bernie will clip out the positive thing. 
with Trump, he says a million terrible things about Trump, but Trump clips out the one positive thing in the sense that Joe's going after Biden and he wants to highlight that. And, you know, everybody knows the story now because he went, uh, Joe went public with this, but guys, every single presidential candidate, after Bernie went on and that podcast blew up and everybody loved it, and you read the comment section, it's all these people who are like, I thought Bernie was crazy. Now I love him and I'm voting for him. Every other presidential candidate reached out to Joe to try to get on. Every other one. Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, their teams all reached out. And then they had the nerve to deny it when he mentioned it. They denied it. He, he's got email. He's got proof. But this is how politicians are. It really almost shows like they embody the stereotype of them. You know what I mean? Like the stereotype is they're, just, they're looking for a parade to jump in front of. That's what they're doing. That's what it is. And when you look at the number one podcast in the world, the Joe Rogan experience, they're like, now there's a parade, and that's one I definitely want to hop in front of. And they all do it. Ones I love like Bernie, and ones I don't like Trump. But I couldn't believe. The President of the United States tr- tweeted a Joe Rogan clip <laughs> just because he was casually dunking on Biden. I will say this. Trump is more online than any other um, president in history. I mean, that's obvious. Maybe even than any other politician. Maybe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gives him a run for his money in terms of how online she is, because she's always tweeting just like he's always tweeting, but God, he is so online. He's tweeting a Joe Rogan clip. Imagine he actually... What, what are you doing with all your time? That's the other thought I had when I was looking at this. Like, okay, my dude, you're the president of the United States. Go sign an executive order. Go end a war. Go have a meeting with a couple ambassadors or maybe some senators. What are you doing? Tweeting a Joe Rogan clip. I don't even care the backstory as to how he got it. Whatever the backstory is as to how he got that clip, it's time wasted. Go do some stuff that's going to help the world. That's your job. And he doesn't. He'll sit there and watch Fox News all day, you know, and uh, waste as much time as possible. But actually, I'm going to contradict myself here. I take it back. I'd rather him do nothing. Because usually when he gets involved, he'll make stuff worse. So just do nothing. Watch Fox News all day. Watch Joe all day. If he watches Joe enough, at some point, he'll consider taking DMT. (laughs) He'll consider taking DMT or mushrooms or, like, going to the comedy store to watch a set. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a new world. Presidential candidates and the president himself are using Rogan clips. It's almost like you get the sense now that podcasts, in a way, have eclipsed traditional TV. That's the sense I get. There was a story that came out the other day that Bill Clinton is now starting a podcast. I like what uh, Farron Cousins said. He was like, now podcasts are becoming like Facebook. Facebook was cool until all of our parents got on it, and now it's like the least cool thing in the world. Podcasts are becoming the same thing. Like, they're super cool, and then now, like, Bill Clinton has one. Every super rich elite asshole has one. And now everybody's like, hmm, maybe podcasts are not the move. Okay, next. There's a tweet that went viral the other day for all the wrong reasons. So you got this new um, 
Harvard prick who now works for CNN. I swear to God, they, they create these people in a lab, man. They really do. This guy's name is Ryan Brown. He looks like he was born and bred to be a CNN asshole who doesn't believe in anything and just parrots propaganda. Um, and Ryan Brown tweeted the following. In an unprecedented public attack by a sitting U.S. president on the leadership of the U.S. military, President Trump has accused U.S. military leaders of seeking to start wars to boost the profits of defense contractors. He continues, um, the president said, I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. This guy, again, he works for CNN. He's a CNN national security reporter. And he tweeted this. He tweeted this. Pulling the classic offended, how dare you, good sir, good sir, did you say something true? I'll say it again. In an unprecedented public attack, unprecedented public attack by a sitting U.S. president on the leadership of the U.S. military, President Trump has accused U.S. military leaders of seeking to start wars to boost the profits of defense contractors. They would never do such a thing. You guys probably already know why I have Eisenhower over my shoulder, don't you? Remember his farewell address from the White House? He argued exactly this. He was like, guys, look out. There's this thing called the military-industrial complex, and it's really profitable to keep waging war. In fact, war makes certain people very rich. So you got to look out. you got to be careful. you got to be vigilant, because there are going to be people who would send young men and women to die and become cannon fodder so business as usual can continue and they can get wealthy. Raytheon, Boeing, Halliburton, KBR, all these companies, there's so many jobs tied to the war machine. And there's a lot of money that people make as a result of it. Is that one of the considerations? Yes, guys. Defense contractors give money to the politicians when they run. Then the politicians get in power and turn around and give them, like, no-bid contracts. So, of course, it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We, we had a multi-trillion dollar 35-2 plane. It cost trillions of dollars to make, and it didn't fly for a while. They finally fixed it. They finally got it to work. We didn't even need that plane. We only got it because of corruption. This is the military-industrial complex. That's what it is. So this is how stupid our media is. I need you to digest this for me. This is how stupid they are. They are attacking Trump from the right, and they're denying the existence of the military-industrial complex. The real argument against Trump, the one that's true, is, well, hold on, you're talking against the military-industrial complex. You increase the military budget every single year you've been president. Every year you did it. You just did a multi-billion dollar weapons deal with Saudi Arabia as they're doing a genocide in Yemen. You're aiding and abetting a genocide of women and children and babies in Yemen. You put the, you put, it was somebody who was one of the executives at Raytheon who's now like the defense secretary. You can't talk against the military industrial complex as you're perpetuating it in no uncertain terms. Guys, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. 
We're in Syria now. We're in Syria. We're escalating with Venezuela. We're escalating with Iran. We increased the drone war 432%. So the real argument against Trump here is, look at him. He's talking about the military-industrial complex as if he's not a leader of it, as if he's not continuing it, as if he's not business as usual. This is a guy who packed his administration full of Wall Street people and full of people from the military-industrial complex. He's part of the problem. He's part of the establishment. He's part of the system. But no, the media is so stupid, and they're such propagandists to the deep state, that the line of argument they went with is, can you believe this guy says the military-industrial complex exists? Jesus Christ, man. Jesus Christ. You only get a job at CNN if you're this much of a sucker. And again, this guy went to Harvard. He went to Harvard. When you go to the elite universities, it's almost like the propaganda is even more dense. And they really drill it in your head, like American exceptionalism and America is the indispensable nation and we're the world's sole superpower and that's a good thing. And everything we do is for justice and freedom and liberty and democracy around the world. And this guy believes it. The smug prick that he is. In an unprecedented public attack by a sitting U.S. president on the leadership of the U.S. military, President Trump has accused U.S. military leaders of seeking to start wars to boost the profits of defense contracts. It actually goes a step further. It's for that, but it's also for oil, tremendous amounts of mineral wealth, trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan, geopolitical power to make sure we counter Russia. This is the way that this is the way they think. But no. Attacking the president. Sir, how could you say something accurate? So impolite. That's who these people are. They're norm-humping propagandists. That's who he is. And thankfully, he got dragged beyond belief from people who saw this. Everybody was like, are you kidding me? By the way, hilarious. Glenn Greenwald tweeted the Eisenhower video. Donald Trump retweeted it. <laughs> and then there's another guy I follow, a doctor, Dr. Amir Amini, I think is his name. He's hardcore lefty, hardcore lefty, like us. And he tweeted about it as well, and Trump retweeted that. So Greenwald changed his, changed his name to Pardon Snowden, and uh, Dr. Amir Amini changed his name to Medicare for All. And also, by the way, in the same thread, the doctor calls Trump a bitch. <laughs> It's so funny. Trump is hilarious because he will literally, anybody who's backing him up at that exact moment, in any way, he's like, that's my friend. I love this person. And like, he's too dumb to realize, like, actually, no, this is such a narrow defense. And they, uh, the, both of those people wouldn't, don't even actually defend Trump. They say the same thing I'm saying, which is, yeah, you're correct about calling out the military industrial complex, but you're perpetuating it. That's exactly what they both say. But Trump just misconstrued as, they're defending me. They must be maggot people. Trump retweeting Glenn Greenwald. And of course, all of Glenn's, you know, the neoliberal enemies of, of Glenn Greenwald will be like, see, Glenn's pro-Trump. You're just as reflexive and reactionary and unthoughtful as Trump himself, if you believe that.
Okay, next. This is good. This is a good one. We have some good news for once, y'all. Get excited. Gallup is out with some new polling numbers on unions, and this is amazing news if you ask me. Americans' approval of labor unions by party. So 83% of Democrats approve of labor unions. 64% of independents approve of labor unions. And now even 45% of Republicans approve of labor unions. So this is interesting, and there has been a little bit of a tick up in the numbers here. And, you know, it, not the Republican one has stayed pretty steady, actually. But there was a two-point tick up for independents and a one-point tick up for Democrats. And um, I, th- I think this might have something to do with the fact that the economy is basically imploding. Yeah. So when people are struggling, and they are, They are. I'll get to some more numbers on that later. But when people are struggling like this, they realize they need help. And the way you get help as a worker is through collective bargaining. You're nothing and you're nobody yourself if you try to stand up to a mega corporation. They just don't care. You're dispensable. But there's power in numbers. And that's where this concept of solidarity comes from. You want to stand in solidarity with your working brothers and sisters. And so if you act as a unit, then it's a lot easier to get your demands met. Absolutely is. You know, by the way, that's why you should never cross a picket line. You should stand in solidarity with workers. Um, So... I have some more information on this, actually. 65% of the country, 65% overall, say labor unions are good and they support them. They approve of them. And that number has gone up uh, because, again, when, th- when the going gets tough, you need help. And you get help from labor unions. Now, Americans age 18 to 34 which is most of the people who watch this show. That's what the demographics show. Most of the people who watch this show, aged 18 to 34, 71% of you guys approve of unions. So again, I feel like since the younger generation has had a harder go of it in terms of, you know, our jobs, that's all the more reason to be supportive of labor unions. So just to put this in perspective here, the macro picture, this is an amazing, amazing chart. Um, Here you see the share of income going to the top 10% and union membership. Look at that. So basically, as soon as we started the decline, the decline of union membership, more of the money started going to the top 10%. It is definitely not a coincidence that during the golden age of economic expansion, as it's called, in the United States, post-World War II era, you had a thriving working class. And you had the highest rates of unionization. So many people were unionized at that point. Now there's been a slow but steady war 
on unions, particularly unions in the private sector. And now it's only like 10% or something of the private sector is unionized. And workers are not doing too well. So more of the money is going to the top 10% because there's not as much collective bargaining, which means workers aren't getting a big enough share. They're getting screwed. So, listen, this really should tell you a lot. Now, that's not the only factor, of course. It's not, like, just the higher rates of unionization that led to the thriving working class. We were also the only game in town post-World War II because Europe was totally destroyed, and so we did a lot of the manufacturing for the world. It also was um, the very high marginal tax rates on the wealthy. We used that money and then redistributed programs like the, in, in the New Deal or on poverty. So there's a lot of things that go into it. But yes, unionization is a key part of it. And when you have strong unions, you have a healthier working class. You know, there are some Scandinavian countries that they actually don't even have minimum wage laws. Now you say, whoa, 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 what? Isn't that a bad thing? I mean, yes, I would argue it's a bad thing. But they have another way of arriving at basically the same place, which is almost everybody who's working is in a union. So you don't need minimum wage laws because you're protected by the collective bargaining agreements and... Nobody is even making what would, be considered, what would be considered a minimum wage. Even the lowest wage is pretty high in these countries because they have collective bargaining and basically everybody's part of the union. Super, super, super important. People need to understand how important unions are and how much it helps the working class. They really need to understand that. Um, and now it turns out the numbers are reflecting that people get it, especially when the going gets tough, people realize they need somewhere to turn, and um, a union would absolutely help. So all of these Republican states that are doing the right-to-work laws, Jesus, those are the worst. And by the way, the data reflects that workers in those states make less than they're unionized, than other states that are unionized. Listen, this stuff isn't up in the air. We have real numbers about what's better for workers and I wish we would go in that direction because it would help a lot of people. Okay, next. All right, we are going to rip the mask off of the system. That's what we're going to do. This next story is really something. It went viral on Twitter, and um, it rips the mask off of the system. It shows you what's really happening with the healthcare that we have. Um, this is Senator Tom Tillis, a staffer in his office. He was contacted by somebody from his state talking about, hey, I have cancer and I can't afford the treatment, and I don't have coverage. A lot of people have lost their coverage with COVID. You lose your job, you lose your coverage. Tens of millions of people are just screwed. So this person is looking for help from one of their elected leaders. Here's what happens. She started calling her lawmakers for guidance and came across a Washington, D.C. staffer for Senator Tom Tillis. Frustrated by the lack of empathy, Veals started recording. You're saying that if you can't afford it, you can't afford it, you don't you don't get to have it, and that includes health care. Yeah, just like I want to go to the store and buy a new dress shirt. If I can't afford that dress shirt, I don't get to get it. The health 
healthcare is something that people need, especially if they have cancer. Well, you have to find a way to get it. To compare it to a dress shirt made me incredibly angry and hurt. So what do I do in the meantime, sir? Sounds like something you have to figure out. Now, everybody is, you know, rightfully going after Tom Tillis and the staffer and making a big stink about this, as they should. But what I need everybody to understand is any elected official who is not in favor of Medicare for All agrees with the staffer here to some extent. Again, they might want to tap dance around it. They might want to do the mental gymnastics. They might want to try to jujitsu their way or BS their way out of it. But effectively, they agree. Effectively, what this staffer said, the staffer said it in a very crass way, but they agree with the way the system functions. Even Joe Biden's health care plan on his own website, it says we want to cover 97% of the country. This country, 350 million people. What about the other 3%? Don't cover them? Your ideal goal is 97%, which means you're admitting you're going to have 3% of people who aren't covered? What happens to them? Do they, don't count? they don't count? They don't matter? They could easily be in a situation like this person's in. If you're not for Medicare for All, if you're not fighting for Medicare for All, if you're, you haven't signed on to it and would vote for it if you're an elected leader, save it. I don't want to hear what the hell you have to say, because at the end of the day, you agree with what was said here. You agree with it. He says, figure it out to her. Figure it out. Healthcare. Can't afford it. I'm going to call my elected official and say, hey, isn't your job to, like, represent me? And shouldn't this be one of those things in a civilized society which is off the table and taken care of? The government has roads. Bridges, fire department, cops, healthcare shouldn't fall into the same category as things that are off the table. He says you have to find a way to get it. Well, that's what she's trying. That's why she's contacting you. Hey, can I get some help here? Is there, can we maybe expand Medicaid to include me? Is there, you know, a way where I can get it covered? Totally dismissive. Couldn't care less. Compares it to buying a dress shirt. You know what that reminded me of? When Ben Shapiro compared healthcare to buying furniture. He did a snarky tweet responding to Bernie Sanders when Bernie said something that was pro-Medicare for all. And he said, oh, I want to get some new furniture, but I can't afford it. Crazy. These things are categorically different. Categorically different. You need healthcare to live, to survive. You need it. And everybody's going to use it at one point or another in their lives. We all slowly break down over time. It's like a dress shirt. Can't afford the dress shirt, you can't get it. Can't afford your cancer treatment, you can't get it. So we have trillions of dollars to build new warplanes that barely work. That's the F-35 too. We have trillions to bail out corporations And Wall Street, we have money for Big Pharma. We have money for oil subsidies, $4 billion every single year. We have money for all this. Endless wars, which were offensive in nature, attacking countries that didn't attack us, 
but she can't get her cancer treatment paid for? I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. I don't care if you're the most hardcore conservative there is. You know I'm right about this. Oh, you know it. You know that we can take health care off the table, and that can be funded. That can be paid for. You want to know why else you know that? Because it saves money. Yeah, under our current system, you have an unnecessary, rapacious, mafia-like, for-profit, predatory middleman that steals from you. They get in between you and your doctor, and they take their cut. If you get rid of somebody having a cut, it tends to save money. Medicare for All saves $5 trillion over the course of a decade. $5 trillion. So it saves money, and it covers everybody. Remind me again what kind of excuses you have as to why we shouldn't have it. The only reason we don't have it is because the politicians are corrupt. That's the only reason that we don't have Medicare for All. The politicians are corrupt. That's it. They take money from Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies and all the people who have a vested interest in keeping our broken system the way it is. Because it ain't broken for them. It's not broken for the health insurance companies. They're making record profit, even during a pandemic. It's not broken for them. But I don't want to hear it from anybody who's not for Medicare for All. I don't want to hear a word from any Democratic politician who wants to virtue signal and grandstand over this, because you might have said it in a nicer way, but you agree with the heart of what was said here. You agree with the substance of it. Hey, you can't afford it? What are you going to do? It's like a dress shirt. What are you going to do? You got to find a way to get it. You got to figure it out. You agree with that if you're not for Medicare for all. You think this should be on the private marketplace. This is our system. It's a joke, guys. I mean, listen, I don't know how else to say it, but the rest of the world, there's a mixture of reactions. They either feel bad for us, really bad for us, or they laugh at us. That's the reaction. That's the response. Because the rest of the developed world, they... Medical bankruptcies are not even a thing in other developed countries. If you get sick, you get help, and you're done. You don't have to go bankrupt. You don't have to pay anything. I've told the story about how in the U.K., you can go and have some surgery done, and then as you leave, they ask you if you want cab money. So it could be net profitable to go to the doctor, to go to the hospital. Compare that with how we are here. It's a joke. What was the number? We just covered it the other day. Was it like 50% of the country that fears medical bankruptcy now? Half the country of a country, 350 million people are like, I'm, I'm terrified of medical bankruptcy. These things aren't debatable. See, that's what I'm trying to get through to you. If there's anything you take away from this show, let it be that. There are some things that are not debatable. And the fact that they're still trying to debate it says a hell of a lot about the people who are doing it. Don't try to debate me. Don't try to serve me a plate of shit and tell me it's a fudge brownie. And how many people have been so thoroughly brainwashed by the system that they will argue the other side of this? The other side of this. How many people have been that brainwashed by the system? We actually have the number. I think it's 31% of the country. Because I believe it's 69% of the country, don't make a joke, uh, who are for Medicare for all now. That means about 30% of the country are against it. Think about how much of a cuck you are to not get it at this late date with all of the chaos around you, all of the endless stories about how broken our system is and how it's a scam on top of a scam within a scam, and you hear stuff like this, and you want to defend that, and you think you're the one who's keeping it real? There's nothing worse than that. 
somebody who's so convinced they're right and they, they, they're talking like, I'm going to put it to everybody straight, okay? But they're not just wrong. They're like arrogantly wrong. I, I don't have any patience anymore for stuff like that. I really don't. I just don't have, I don't have it anymore. It's gone. <laughs> no more patience. People have to understand how bad the system is, how much it's screwing us. And unfortunately, you'll have people out there who are willing dupes and propagandists of for-profit health insurance companies. And they don't even realize they're doing it, but they're so cucked and they're so brainwashed that they end up arguing for a system that victimizes almost all of us. Okay. All right, next. There's a new... Ooh, got to change the graphic again. How often do I do that? There we go. I'm going to give you guys an update as to what's happening with the financial situation in the country and how much people are struggling. Okay. So there's a new NPR poll that just came out about COVID, and here's what they say. Financial pain from coronavirus pandemic is, quote, much, much worse than expected. Much, much worse. Here are the specifics. I'm going to use Chicago as the go-to here, but they have numbers for Los Angeles and New York City. So in Chicago, 50% of people say they have, quote, serious financial problems. 50%. Half have serious financial problems. Um, Used up all or most of their savings. 35%. Serious problems paying credit cards, loans, and debt, 26%. Serious problems paying mortgage, 25%. Mortgage or rent, that is. Serious problems paying utilities, 23%. Serious problems affording food, 17% of people in Chicago. Serious issues affording food. Serious problems affording medical care, 15%. Serious problems making car payments, 13%. Other serious financial problems, 17%. So, in other words, this is the worst situation we've been in since the Great Depression, and it's not even close. I'll give you some more numbers. In Houston, 63% of households reported having serious financial problems. By the way, the number nationwide is 46%. So, almost half the country is having, quote, Serious financial problems. 63% in Houston. New York City, 60%. We have, now they asked a a variety of questions. So caregiving. They asked about, um, hey, are you having issues getting caregiving for your kids? 60% for that as well. That's 59% nationally are having issues. They don't know what's going on with the kids, what's going on with school, what are they going to do all day. There's a bunch of issues. 
Los Angeles, 56% of households are having serious financial problems. Uh, Again, back to Houston, 41% used up almost all of their savings. 41% can't pay credit cards and debt. 37% can't pay utilities. 34% can't pay mortgage or rent. 33% can't pay for food. So I've never seen anything like this in my life. I've never seen anything like this in my life. People are really hurting. I mean, when you're seeing numbers, 50%, 60% are describing themselves as in serious financial trouble. And listen, what does that mean? Like, how are people defining it in their own mind? I mean, they have to mean, like, hey, two or three more months of this, and I can't afford to have a roof over my head, right? I mean, that's my interpretation of it. And you got politicians who are leaning into culture war stuff. See it all the time. I see it all the time. There really is this weird assumption that things are still like, you know, whatever, 2006. Politicians are acting like, like they're not up to date, up to speed with what's really happening in the country. And they're operating based off the old school model. And you got politicians leaning into issues that are like obviously not the main issue. Even Trump with this whole law and order thing and, you know, let's talk about the riots and looting and all that stuff. Think about the number of Americans who have been directly impacted by that versus the number of Americans who've been directly impacted by COVID-19, but also the economic ramifications of COVID-19. It's not even close. It's not even close. So you can't just override it. You can't just override that through force of will or through trying to focus on other things. Democrats are doing the how do you do fellow kids strategy now where they're trying to like, you know, Biden put, got, you know, Kamala and himself in a video game. It's like, and this is what's going on in the country. People can't even pay the freaking bills anymore. We know it's bad because even before COVID, the numbers were preposterous. Like 78% of the country was living paycheck to paycheck before COVID. And now with this, throwing a wrench in everything even more, 20% actual unemployment. The people who have jobs still are taking pay cuts, sometimes 20%, 25% across the board. And here we are with these numbers. Something needs to be done now. Thing number one is universal basic income. We got to do universal basic income. At the very least, new stimulus checks, more stimulus checks, you know, that's absolutely necessary. I don't know how we'd get around not doing it. Medicare for all would be great too. Ease the stress of medical bankruptcy, which is a leading cause of bankruptcy in this country, which people are feeling, fearing right now in the middle of a pandemic. I don't see anybody grappling with the reality that is our current economic situation. And it is terrifying to see the disconnect. By the way, I do think that a lot of the unrest in the streets, even though it's nominally over racial justice, I do think a lot of it does stem from the state of the economy too, for sure. Because you're a lot more likely to get out there and there's a lot more likely to be civil unrest in a situation like this versus if everybody was doing okay and they were financially stable. Okay, next. 
Since the 2024 speculation has already officially begun, and we've dabbled in it ourselves a smidge, the Independent says the following. Tucker Carlson will be the Republican nominee in 2024, Trump insider predicts. Tucker Carlson. So the source is a guy by the name of Vernon Robinson. He's, um, he's from the Trump super PAC, Black Americans to Re-Elect Trump. He's also a former Republican congressional candidate. So he's somebody who's very familiar in these, you know, right-wing circles among leadership. So is he right? Listen, I have no idea. Um, my guess would be, and this is nothing but a guess, but Tucker's probably very comfortable just doing his show. He's also, I think it's the number one rated show at this point as well among cable news. So he's kind of gotten himself in a nice position. And I would be surprised if he were to let that go to try to run for office. But listen, man, the overall point here is Vernon Robinson thinks, hey, it is a new kind of Republican Party, at least in terms of rhetoric. So the old Republican Party was the Mitt Romney Party, the George W. Bush Party, where you were hawkish on foreign policy, outwardly hawkish on foreign policy, but also you drink the, the so-called free market Kool-Aid, where you talk about how great trickle-down economics is and cutting taxes for the rich and deregulating and all that stuff. And the new breed of Republican, again, at least in terms of rhetoric, because I would argue substantively on policy, Trump is just like W. Bush and just like Mitt Romney. His policies are exactly like theirs. But rhetorically, what does Trump do that's different than the previous Republican leaders? Well, he talks more about, hey, we got to stop outsourcing. I'm going to protect your jobs. The trade deals have, have ruined us. So that's nominally anti-free trade. Again, even though he's effectively for free trade, it's nominally anti-free trade. Um, it's more protectionist in his rhetoric. It's more populist in that it, he'll talk a, about corruption in a negative way, even though he partakes in it. Uh, it's paleoconservative as well. Foreign policy, he's not. He'll talk in an anti-war way from time to time. That's not something you would have ever gotten from like Mitt Romney, who would just flat out argue for the wars. Um, and Tucker is that same, you know, conservative strain of thought. He's the same ideologically, where he's kind of like paleoconservative. He'll also talk about, sometimes he does these segments out of nowhere, they're kind of bashing certain rich people. Again, it's more of a trick than anything else, because it just redirects um, populist energy to back non-populist politicians. So I think it's largely a fraudulent tap dance. But the point is, Vernon Robinson thinks this is representing something that's very real and we ain't going back. You're not just going to go back to another standard politician on the Republican side who outwardly presents as a standard politician. You're gonna, it's going to be somebody who's more um, at least populist appearing, and Tucker Carlson would fill that role. Now, is he right? Again, I don't know. I tend to doubt that Tucker would run, but maybe he would. But I think the person who's positioned to continue the Trump legacy most would honestly be Pence or Josh Hawley. Um, and I do think that they're, they would be similar to Trump as well in that, again, all the stuff that's populist in rhetoric or paleoconservative in rhetoric is just in rhetoric. They would keep the status quo going. They would keep business usual going. 
They're pro-establishment themselves, but they would have the appearance of something else. They would have the appearance of Trumpism. So, and I probably think Pence is more likely out of between him and Hawley because Pence has a much higher public profile at the moment since he's VP and he's stuck with Trump through everything. And I think the base recognizes that and would reward that. Here's who I don't think it would be, and there's been a lot of speculation about this guy recently, Tom Cotton. I definitely don't think it would be him because he has the personality of watching paint dry. Really awkward, really weird, not dynamic at all. That guy is not winning a race for president. It's not happening. It's not happening. He's ridiculous. That's not happening. But a lot of people seem to think, people are acting like he's populist. He's not freaking populist. Some people say the same about Marco Rubio now. He's not populist at all either. He's a child. But yeah, I would think that the one who would inherit the throne, it could be Pence or Hawley. If Tucker wanted to run, he'd have a chance. But also, I feel like he's very long-winded, and it's good for monologues, but it's not good in debates. He's not punchy enough. He'd have to kind of sharpen that a little bit. But here we go. 2024 speculation is already going. And as we have spoken about previously, I hope it's Nina Turner on the Democratic side. Okay. Final story of the day. The Democrats are leaning into the how do you do fellow kids strategy. And this is how they're reaching out to young voters. Take a look. And your relationship with Joe, and what do I need to know? Like, what's the thing about the ice cream? He loves ice cream. Tell me about that. <laughs> ice cream is big. Uh, pasta with red sauce. He, he can he, he can go deep on that. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> he really does like those aviator glasses. He knows he looks good in them. We're in a new depression. The real unemployment rate is 20%. 46% of Americans are having, quote, serious financial troubles. Serious financial troubles. That's nearly half the country. This is what they're doing. Why are they acting like this is a normal year and a normal election? Why are you doing that? You think you could just, like, cutesy your way into the White House in the middle of a pandemic and a depression and a continuation of endless wars? I got more for you. The Hill says, new. Billie Eilish, DJ Khaled, and other celebrities offer exclusive experiences in campaign to mobilize young voters. You know, if you read the story, they also say Usher is involved. See, the Democrats would literally rather force Usher to vote for you than give you health care. Did I say Usher to vote for you? I meant to say dance for you. They'd rather force Usher to dance for you than give you healthcare. I'm still not done. Huffington Post said the following. By the way, Washington Post had a similar article as well. Like a boss, Twitter users are raving about Kamala Harris's campaign trail shoes. (laughs) Yes, Chuck Taylors were trending for hours after the vice presidential candidate sported the look in Milwaukee. I seriously don't get what would it take 
for everybody to be serious about this moment. I mean, we have tens of millions of people without health care during a pandemic. Millions just lost their health care because they lost their job. We're turning into a failed state. Have you seen what's been going on with the climate recently? California's on fire. Scenes from there look like it's out of Mars. Oregon, same thing. Saw a video from Oregon the other day, just totally red sky. You know, they're giving the advice now in L.A. to like, hey, please don't use any appliances after 3 p.m. and also turn your thermostat like 78 degrees because we can't even afford, we can't keep the lights on because of the wildfires. There was a thing that came out the other day. It was like, fire on this side, fire on this side. I think this was in Colorado, and snow in the middle. It went from like 93 degrees to 37 in a day. That's some apocalyptic shit I've ever seen to myself. Like, what is going on? What is happening? And this is what, instead of talking about climate change, instead of talking about the Green New Deal, instead of talking about Medicare for All, instead of talking about universal basic income, which we need right now, Here's Billy Relish. <laughs> Here's DJ Khaled and Usher. <laughs> Joe likes his aviator glasses. Yes, he does. And pasta with red sauce. <laughs> Ice cream. <laughs> Are those Chuck Taylors? Are those Chuck Taylors? I love Chuck Taylors. Kamala's like me. She wears shoes. I wear shoes. We both wear sneakers. <laughs> I like sneakers and so does she. So relatable. So relatable. Oh, somebody's at the door. I'm being foreclosed on. I don't know why more people aren't flipping out and why people aren't taking this moment seriously. This is as bad as it's ever been in my lifetime, for sure. This is as bad as it's been since the Great Depression. And this is what we're getting from the Democrats. All right, guys. I am done. I love you, baby. Everybody stay safe out there and um, try to hang on. I know it's tough times for everybody, but I love you. I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.